Just as a pod, Patreon only questions and answers. Here we go. Philip Barrara, if you could make a mecha inspired knight, what aesthetic would you go for? Mobile suit, Gundam Evangelion, if I'm saying that right. And then Paul asks, Migas XLR. Um, I think I would stay away from all those. I would try to come up with something different. But I am obviously interested in biomechanical things. So uh, maybe by that virtue, it's probably closer to the Avas. Brennan O'Hare, can I borrow $5? Nope. Gavin Rader, what's the backstory of Hypernite and for Radic? Does he even lift bro? What's the inspiration for those slippers? Uh, and then some additional questions. Let me answer these first. So, backstory for Hypernite, not ready to reveal that yet, but it is coming. Uh, backstory for Radic, he is the vector detective. He, um, I don't think I want to say more than that right now, but we're getting closer. And uh, as we launch the Action Figure of the Month 2020, Radic's backstory will come into stark focus. Uh, now for Gavin's other questions. Do you plan on offering any more O'Neill design accessories and colorways matching new releases, axis or swing joints? Um, not, no, no, no current plans to sort of use any O'Neill pieces um, or sort of copy any of the colorways he's had. Um, when those opportunities do pop up, they're sort of spur of the moment and because it makes sense or aligns with something going on production-wise. But uh, for the current time, no new plans for that. Justin Doak says, With Shikan in hand, I'm just fascinated by the UV PVC. It changes so quickly. What kind of range of colors are possible like that? Uh, can a weirder color... If... if sorry. If weirder... weirder if weird color effects are on the table, is swirled PVC possible? Because clear swirled with UV reactive or glow in the dark would be absolutely bonkers. Also, chicane material, boys? Question mark. Um, so, what you guys are are learning very quickly, which was illustrated in the Design and Night tournament, and what in, it sort of informs this question, is that production and plastics and gimmicks are actually very limited. Um, there is not a full range of colors you can get with UV reactive material. You can kind of do like a sort of grayish green. You can kind of do white to blue. Um, you can kind of do a soft orange to a dark blue. Uh, and then you also have heat activated and UV activated, two different sort of color change mechanisms. Uh, overall, it's a lot more restrictive than I think you guys would imagine it is. There's not a huge variety of colors, and um, it's very hard to get as deep of a pigment as we were able to get with the chicane. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is chemistry, and sometimes the batch works great, sometimes it doesn't. In chicane, I think it's probably the best UV color change I've seen uh, in our production or in any other product on the market. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a much smaller sort of uh, range than I think most people would, would think it is. Regarding Chicon Material Boys, um, yeah, there are some plans for Chicon Material Boys. The next Chicon release will be at theyeti.com slash Chicon. It's going to be a deluxe version. Um, I'm hoping to have information on that soon. should be within the next couple months. We'll, uh, we'll open a pre-order on that. Or Yeti will, rather. Um, Brett Lawson, what about a night homage to Evangelion? Uh, and, or some Micros Device Ninjas. Um, I sort of feel like 
Evangelion is too perfect to do an homage to. It's such a great series, and it's so precious to me. Um, I don't actually want to want to even broach that. I may feel differently after some time has passed, and I've, I I still want to see all the other 1.1 and 2.2 movies and all that. Um, but it just feels too sacred at this time to do an homage. Uh, there are no plans for Micros Device Ninja as of today. Um, it's not hard to imagine I would eventually get to that, but there is a different version of Micros uh, closer than a Device Ninja Micros would be. Uh, SQ asks a bunch of great questions here. Let's see what I can answer. Do you think it will lose that personal touch of packing when you switch over to third-party fulfillment? Um, well, I don't know that I'm switching over to third-party fulfillment. Right now I'm I'm exploring it. I'm going tomorrow to tour a facility. I think third-party fulfillment is not a question of if, it's a question of when, but I don't know that I'm ready to do that today. Um, there is, you know, you the the question really is, is it worth, worth losing a little bit of personal touch to stop the constant shipping errors we have and I think it is because we have a ton of shipping errors it's something we've struggled with from day one and we continue to struggle with and I thank everybody for their patience but we are spending as much time correcting our shipments as we are actually boxing and shipping things out so um, we do need some professional regimented help with this and uh, it's definitely something I'm I'm looking forward to exploring more. I would also say that we have the ability to use branded packaging and also have inserts like postcards or stickers. So, um, you know, there's going to be a plus and a minus to third-party fulfillment if it does happen. But uh, for me, I think people want to get the stuff they ordered without any issues, and that takes precedence. Number two, what's my take on scalpers? from your Patreon gifts to the recent mess. Um, as far as, like, reselling stuff, there's not much I can do, you know. Uh, scalping and reselling is part of any hobby. Uh, I will say that, you know, if people are making money on reselling things, it is in their best interest to keep a low profile and not sort of rock the boat. And I feel like we're getting to a little bit of a critical mass where there are people who are, you know, calling attention to themselves. And uh, I don't think ultimately that's going to serve what they want, which is to, you know, uh, make a little bit of cash on the side and support Knights of the Slice. I don't think that, it, I'm of the opinion that nobody is sort of solely buying Knights of the Slice just to resell. Um, and I have the benefit of seeing the back end and seeing what people's actual sales are versus what ends up on the secondary market. I'm not always going to have the ability to track these things so easily, but because we're at a manageable size right now, I have a really good idea of how much people are spending versus what's ending up uh, back out in the secondary market. So it's not, a, it's not a part of the industry that I like, but it is sort of something that's going to exist no matter who's doing the reselling. You know, I think that a focus on just targeting the specific resellers that are there today is not going to solve the problem of people marking stuff up later on or, you know, 
creating new profiles or having aliases or things like that. So um, historically at every company I've worked at, there's always reselling. Uh, and there's not much, you know, toy companies don't have a ton of power when it comes to this stuff. Uh, what I can say is that, you know, um, things that are privately shared in the Patreon or Patreon gifts that are, ma you know, marked limit one per or not for resale, you know, those are rules I expect people to abide by. And if they don't, then uh, we have a problem. Number three, uh, you've mentioned a list that you keep track of. Have you ever thought of acting on that? Uh, I don't know what list you're referring to. I do track and com compile data on resellers, on, um, you know, I guess people who have had uh, shipping issues. There's a ton of different data that I sort of put together and have lists on. Um, so without knowing specifically what you mean, I, I don't know what action... Uh, you're advocating I take here. Let's move on to the next question. Is Beef Strong officially dead? Can we pay a visit to your idea graveyard? Dedicate a Patreon post. No, Beef Strong's not dead. I think what you're referring to is a uh, a Patreon story post where I said rest in pieces Radic, and that was just because he printed in pieces, and I think some of the pieces did not uh, print correctly. So that was just kind of a joke. Um, the Beef Strong designs are still in full effect, but Radic is really moving away from being a purely Beef Strong design and is actually becoming more of a 2D, 3D hybrid. We are going back to the original pieces that Ant Suck sculpted for us and uh, reusing them. If you've been following along, you know that Radic today looks dramatically different than his Beef Strong rendering. And uh, we're just really trying to hone in and get uh, get the right look and feel, and part of that means taking a step away from Jordan's designs. Uh, but the other characters Jordan has done that will debut in Action Figure of the Month 2020, those are relatively intact compared to his initial thought. So I don't know how much branding Beef Strong will have on the Action Figure of the Month 2020, given that Radic, the main character, is now sort of revised, um, but it's something I'm thinking about. Uh, can I buy more hilt? Uh, I'm guessing this is the uh, light stick holders. Is that what you're referencing here? Uh, no plans currently for more of those to come out, but it's on my to-do list. I'd like to figure out a way to, you know, make some more. Number six, how is Jack doing? Jack is doing fine. Number seven, have you ever encountered a mind block before? How did you manage it? Um, so in terms of like writer's block or creative blocks, I, I don't get that anymore. Um, I used to get that, you know, in my 20s, but that was more a circumstance of just being depressed and, you know, being kind of a shitty 20-year-old. Um, I have no problem delivering creatively now. I, I actually, if anything, I have a problem sort of slowing down and, um, you know, blocking the creativity on purpose so I can kind of relax. I have too many ideas. They're constantly flowing constantly filling up sketchbooks. Um, you know, it feels a bit manic at times. Uh, I think that if people are experiencing creative block, the best thing to do is just sit in front of a blank piece of paper with a pencil or a pen and just literally start writing any and everything. 
and usually you will find um, the path presents itself. It's just a matter of being regimented in how you approach that. So that would be my advice. And uh, touch wood, I haven't had creative block in, uh, I mean, probably a decade, I would say at this point. Uh, question number eight, 3A is dead. Did you see that coming? Do you see yourself in Knights of the Slice for a decade? Um, boy, let's see here. So 3A, I, I, I can't really comment on this because I have done licensing deals with 3A. I know Ash and, um, you know, I know Kim and I know the guys there. Um, I, yeah, I just don't feel right weighing in on this. I, I will say that what will be the downfall fall of most newer toy companies is going to be the pre-order model. And this is not a specific criticism towards 3A or 3.0, but what we've seen in the last decade, maybe, maybe less than that, is this pre-order game where people are taking money based off of very early concept art or maybe an early prototype, and then years go by before product is shipped. And it's not just 3A that, you know, is guilty of this. Most modern toy companies do this. And I think that those days are over. I think that the jig is up. I think if you look at, you know, the ripples that have happened in Kickstarter with campaigns that probably would have made it a year ago, struggling to even make half their goal, I think that, you know, that's where we are. We have a highly skeptical adult action figure consumer. And I think that's for the best. So, um, uh, you know, I try not, I try to do pre-orders sparingly. And when I do them, I try to ship early if I can. Uh, do I see myself in Knights of the Slice for a decade? I don't know. I think it's really hard to say. I think in a decade, I, I want to have a Super 7 style company. I think Brian is the smartest guy in the room by far. And that's the business model I emulate, shamelessly. Um, Knights of the Slice itself is, is such a contemporary idea for me. I don't have the same attachment to it that I do something like Rex Gannon or Cray in the Jagged Age. Um, I could see a scenario where I sell off Knights of the Slice to, I don't know, Saban or <laughs> whoever, and just let them run with it because it's um, it was an idea that was created on the fly with no historical significance for my old creative projects. And uh, because of that, it it means everything and it means nothing at the same time, if that makes sense. Jason Stark says, will you ever re-release the original trio of knights? No, not in that form. We have re-released those characters, if you look at the micros drop of Brick, Lime, and Teal. But no, I don't have any interest in rerunning those original knights, and I have very little interest in rerunning any other figures. You know, we are... We're a fashion brand in many respects. Uh, we release a style, we sell out, we move on. That's the that's the business model. JT asks, what are the steps of taking a resin piece like the Arc Welder into full production? And what is it, what would be the most tedious or difficult step of getting a figure accessory fully production ready? So uh, the next steps for something like the Arc Welder, which I would like to make as a production piece, it's on the short list. Uh, all the hard work is done. I literally would just have to send the 3D file to China. They would generate a tooling model. I would get it. I would check it, make sure the fit's right. Uh, and then I would approve it to be added to a steel mold and a cavity. Um, 
So 90% of the work for my end in pre-production is done on, on an item like that. The most tedious or difficult step of a figure, which also is kind of a fun part of it, is what we're doing right now with Radic, where we're doing iteration after iteration. We're tweaking him, we're printing him out, we're testing the fit, you know, feeling the heft, seeing if the joints work, and like I said, I think we've done about 12 versions of Radic, and uh, it is tedious, because we're talking about changes in millimeters, but it's really rewarding and a lot of fun to do it. And me and Jack have a good system going on. So uh, sometimes a tedium is, is actually pretty joyous. James Davis says, Since the Design of Night contest was so fun, could you see yourself opening up to more Patreon feedback for future figures? Maybe you can't decide on a specific color. Hold a vote to see what everyone likes. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And um, the reason is I think that things succeed when there is a singular creative vision. You know, I just mentioned Super 7. I think that's a great idea of a company that succeeded because there is a singular creative voice, and that is really Brian Flynn. Now, he has great staff that he's empowered to make decisions, but Super 7 is Brian Flynn. Uh, if you look at Minecraft, you have Notch from Mojang. He was really the singular creative vision of that massive brand. If you look at Adventure Time, Penn Ward, singular creative vision. If you look at Bee and Puppycats, Natasha... You know, it's it, all of these things that are really great and perfect happen because there's a there's a commanding voice. There's somebody who's taking authority and putting their balls on the line, and it's up to them whether something succeeds or fails. Onel Design, Clios Universe, Matt Doughty, Singular Creative Vision. So, as a fun exercise, I do like the Design of Night tournament, but as a means in which to sort of keep things moving in the quick pace of production and keep nights expanding and growing, having a committee or a vote is not a productive way. It's fun to involve people, but um, it actually becomes detrimental at a certain point. And I'm going to touch on that a little later because there's some good questions that sort of reference this again. Uh, Lucas has some incredible questions, and uh, this is going to be a while, but they're important to talk about. So, number one, what are your thoughts on Hasbro having its own in-house crowdfunding platform? I think it's great. I think Hasbro is largely concerned with shareholders at this point and not real innovation or taking risks. So if they can mitigate that risk through crowdfunding, I'm all for it. I bought and supported the barge. I want to see more stuff like that. Uh, Hasbro announced moving toy production out of China to India and Vietnam. Is this a result of tariffs? Is this a viable option for micromanufacturers? Um, tariffs are not... A company like Hasbro is always going to push to lower costs. And I'm sure India and, and Vietnam are courting them with, you know, essentially better exploitation of workers. And so Hasbro, being bound by their fiduciary responsibilities, has to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I think I'm, you know... At a certain point, I'm going to have to look at alternate, you know, locations for manufacturing. It's just the nature of what this is at this point. Um, so I don't think it's particularly viable for micro companies. But an assembly line can be taught to make anything if I were to spend enough time over there sitting down, physically teaching by hand. The question is, how much time... 
do I want to spend in a place like India or Vietnam or even mainland China instructing new people in, in you know, what our quality goals are. So for me, it's not, right today, it's not a, it's not a viable option. Um, more questions from Lucas. Do you think toy production can be done ethically? This, uh, let me answer that first. I, I, I think you can make a really good argument there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. I think that's a strong argument. Now, I, I do not want to attach myself to any ism, whether it's capitalism, socialism, Marxism, communism. I'm, I, like all of you, am a much more sort of fluid and gray person politically than any of those ideologies. I have no one single ideology. Um, but I would say that currently I find myself being highly skeptical of capitalism rather than blindly following it as a means to, uh, for the betterment of society, let's say. So I do not think toy production overseas can be done ethically. I think that we're, anyone who's manufacturing stuff is guilty of exploitation of labor. That's just, that's how it is. So we have to accept that dichotomy. Um, I can say personally, I have been on the assembly line. I have sat with the people painting the decos. I have met the families that sort of work on our product. And I do not perceive there to be a extra cruel exploitation here. I believe that the people I have met and seen and worked with are happy to have the work. And I did have a discussion with, you know, our factory guy when we were driving back to mainland, uh, to uh, Hong Kong from the mainland. And I said, what is, you know, how do your workers feel about this? What What is it like being in what is considered a communist country? And what, you know, what are the bigger ramifications of this? And he said to me that, you know, the majority of people, uh, you know, the generation just before them had to worry about food. And right now, today, they have food. So they don't care what the, what the government is. They don't care if it's a one-party system like communism. They don't care what the work is they have to do. They care that they have work and they have food and they have shelter. And I think by Western standards, that's a very low bar. But what I don't want to do is sort of force my perspective on the country I grew up in, in a land of plenty. I don't want to force that perspective on somebody else's life because I just think that's ridiculous. So overall, I'm, I am conflicted and uneasy about the exploitation of labor. And not to mention the natural resources, uh, which is another question later on that we're going to get into. But um, yeah, this is, a, this is a true dichotomy. We are sort of, you know, we're passionate collectors of an item that takes a huge toll on the environment and requires exploitation and cheap labor. So we have to sort of, uh, we have to recognize that. And I do think we can nudge things in a positive direction, but largely... If people want to keep buying plastic, this system is not going to change. Um, so to move on to the second part of this question, uh, ethically, you know, no, I don't think it can be done ethically. Um, this can apply to union labor, small-scale production, large-scale production. Can Hasbro produce 
figures with a unionized workforce. They could, I don't think they will convince their shareholders that paying the extra price for a unionized workforce is worth it. Could I use unionized workforce to produce toys? Um, theoretically, I guess the question is, would you be willing to pay 30 to $50 for a single figure? You know, and I don't know that the answer is yes there. We've also gutted and stripped and sold off for parts the entire manufacturing arm in the United States. Now, I'm I'm in, you know, negotiation to sort of um, develop some small-scale manufacturing here in the States, and I've met some partners who can do this. So it's something I'm I'm looking at, but I don't entirely know what the feasibility of this is yet. What would you like... In a post-capitalist world where toy creating becomes an entirely creative medium, will there be collectors, will there be laborers to produce these toys? Um, well, so this is, a, this is a sort of faulty question because I don't know what a post-capitalist world is, and I think we all have very different ideas of that. And I, I think that logically a post-capitalist world is probably a quasi-capitalist world you know, something akin to, I don't know, the Nordic regions, where it's a, it's a blend of different things. I mean, the U.S. is not a capitalist society in the purest respects. It is, it's a blend of a lot of different things. It's an, you know, I consider it to be an oligarchy mixed with capitalism, mixed with socialism. You know, I, I don't think there's a pure system that's achievable at all. I, you know, I just don't see that happening because especially in the U.S., we're, we're a melting pot of different ideas and ethnicities and worldviews. Um, you can achieve a monolith or a single system of government when you have, uh, you know, a just a monolith of culture where there's only one culture. You know, if you look at something like Japan, um, there's largely no crime there because everybody sort of is on, in the same boat. Not to say there isn't, you know, conflicting political ideas, but largely, as a culture, it's, it's homogenized. Um, so I don't think in a post-capitalist world we actually lose it, capitalism altogether. I think that it will look like some sort of Frankenstein creation. Um, I do think there's actually an opportunity in a, let's say, a less acute capitalist world for more pursuit of toy design as an entirely creative medium. But part of the problem with that is that not everybody has great designs. You could argue that, you know, if everybody had the time and the leisure to pursue the things they like, like toy design, that everybody would create something great. But I, I don't buy into that. I don't think everybody's has great artistic ideas. I think that, I, you know, like uh, Tim and Eric say, 99% of everything is absolute shit. And I actually agree with that. I think that it is really hard to achieve something that's sublime and great. I don't think I'm there yet, but I think I'm on the path to creating something great. And I don't know that that is intrinsic in every living creature. I think that actually art is an elusive thing. And uh, But getting back more to the, the meat of the question, um, will there still be collectors? Sure. I don't... I don't 
if there's a profound change to the structure of our world, I do not see people stopping uh, collecting things or being interested in those things. I, I think you could make the argument there would actually be more, and there may be more disposable income to support artists and things like that. Um, you know, uh, the director of Mad Max, George... Oh, God, his name's escaping me. I'm sorry. Uh, the director of Mad Max said that um, in every culture, no matter how rich or how poor, there's always ornaments and there's always creative design and expression. And he infused Mad Max Fury Road with that idea that there are, you know, idols and uh, there are sort of medals and medallions and decorations because that, you know, regardless of how a society is, there is always adornment. And I think that's an interesting idea. And I don't, I think regardless of the society, we're always going to produce artistic things and there's always going to be collectors. Um, if we shifted away from a completely capitalist world, I don't know how traditional toy production would work. Uh, you know, the largest ingredients here are sort of fossil fuels and exploitation of labor. So I don't know how that would work, but I, I do have a hint at where I think things are moving, and I'm, I'm going to touch on that a little further down. Um, Gavin jumped in here and said, in a world that has become more conscious of sustainable energy, have you heard of any innovations in toy making that eliminates the reliance on fossil fuels and petroleum products, perhaps new methods that could reuse plastic or create new toys? So um, the bad news is no, there is nothing in any part of production, including the prototyping, that doesn't rely on fossil fuels or petroleum projects, uh, products. Uh, the, the need for petroleum is not going to go away no matter how advanced we are, as I can see it. Now, what I do think is a possible scenario for the future that is a little bit better in terms of easing the exploitation of foreign workers is what we're kind of experimenting now with the new 3D printer, where we can output in resin, a figure that is articulated and movable and sharply detailed, um, you know, that is a very compelling example of where manufacturing may be heading. We may improve these 3D printers so that it can be done at our own houses, it can be done in mass, and it can be done with only the exploitation of the actual artist itself. I don't mind putting together these resin pieces one at a time and doing limited paint echo and things like that. Um, that feels like a slightly more ethical way of doing toy releases. And maybe that takes up a larger portion of this. But for at least the next 50 years, the overseas manufacturing is not going anywhere as far as I'm concerned. Um, and also, like, we have a big issue to solve here with paint. I think eventually we will have 3D printers where you can easily select the colors and it's printing those pigments perfectly. So the early stages of what may be the, this next revolution in manufacturing is is kind of starting now. Um, as far as like reusing older plastics, that's not a viable option because of the... I mean, plastic that we use now only has a shelf life of about 30 to 50 years. That's why if you look at toys from the 70s like Migos or... Um, 
you know, uh, Marx Cowboys. Uh, they're crumbling. They're falling apart. Even some of the early Metacom stuff has started to deteriorate. Um, plastics are very temporary, even though environmentally they sort of last a lot longer than other products. Um, but there's not the way things are done now. There's not a way to reuse older plastics. They are once a plastic has been used or manufactured or heated to that temperature. Uh, it cannot be reheated and reapplied. That's the nature of it. Uh, in terms of making, uh, using stuff like plant-based products, which Lego has started to do, um, it's a great idea. It's it's definitely a step in the right direction, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the overall problem of manufacturing. And, and manufacturing toys is a fraction of what is manufactured in plastic. Think of just medical devices. That has to be a field that is a hundred times bigger than toys and requires plastic. And and there is a there's a cost of life associated with using plastic medical devices over other stuff. I mean we used to use mercury and everything and and lead, you know. If you think of switching from those hazardous directly hazardous materials to plastics, there's actually there's been a benefit to human life for that. So again, with all of this, there is a dichotomy. There is a, there's a negative and a positive in all of this. So it's, it's good not to sort of be myopic in, in the view of these things. Uh, Lee Mullick also chimes in here. I've heard of sugarcane based plastics. It's as durable as traditional plastics, but a lot more recyclable on the other end. The biggest issue there is the amount of cane you would have to grow to, to provide all the plastic we use in modern life. So with cane-based plastics or, uh, you know, plant-based plastics, as Lego's sort of experimenting with, they may be durable over the short term compared to plastic, but not over the long term because these are organic materials. They're, they're going to deteriorate. If you ever open up a toy from the 80s and it's kind of tacky in the plastic, that is deterioration of the plastic or the, the sort of chemicals that were used in, in the manufacturing of the plastic. So... Uh, you also, when you think about something like sugarcane, there's a huge cost of human labor involved in that uh, compared comparatively to the smaller human cost of plastic manufacturing. You know, I think all the time about um, veganism and the ethics of it. And there is a really great message in not wanting to harm animals. And there's a great message in wanting to, in treating every life as important. But the problem is, in order to produce vegan food or the abundance of off-season vegetables that vegans or vegetarians enjoy, there's a tremendous cost of human labor, and it's typically migrant labor that's exploitative. So you see that in any of these discussions, we sort of, we get backed into a corner of good and bad. And what we have to do instead is accept that there's good and bad in in all of this. Um, There is not... You know, what is ethical in one sense may be dangerous to human life in another sense. So it's it's important to look really critically at these things. And I think these are fantastic questions, and these are things we should all be discussing. And these are not things I see being discussed in these big toy conglomerates. And I think they're important questions because the bigger the company, the bigger the impact they can have on something like this. Uh, Brandon Michael Barker says there are a lot of humans in the United Slice universe. Any chance we could see more monsters, mutants, or sword and malfeasance? Um, probably, but it's not a priority for me. 
Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of kaiju or monsters or things like that. I actually, uh, I believe that a human narrative is what drives all of the story. And it's human characters that sort of give us the compelling connectivity. It's harder to to connect with a monster character because we haven't grown up as monsters. Um, so for me, you know, Knights of Slice is always story-based and what story can I tell. And in order to tell these complex, convoluted sci-fi stories, I actually have to have a human avatar that is sort of the window in for the reader. Uh, that being said, there are a couple monster-esque sculpts that have never seen the light of day that may at some point and uh, I think that'll be interesting James Hannes said will there ever be Egg Knight 2.0, Vector Egg Egg Killer, Desert Egg, Device Egg Hyper Knight, an entire excellent wave um, well I am a fan of eggs, the Egg Knight was a small I think five piece run of white knights that I melted a small miniature egg to it was kind of fun uh, no current plans for Egg Knight 2.0 Brendan Quintero says, any thoughts on trying for a 12-inch knight and possibly info on Vice and Rebel Knight? I don't have any new info on Vice and Rebel Knight of the synth. That's up to 1,000 toys. I think we're going to try to have it out at DesignerCon this year, but that's really up to 1,000 toys. You should, if you guys want Vice and Rebel Knight, post a picture on 1,000 toys page. Tell them we want this. Let them know. Regarding a 12-inch knight, check my last question and answer uh, podcast because I go into detail with this. I would do a 12 night only if Pierre Aramax Kalanizaga comes to the table and helps us make that because I believe he is the expertise I need to do that right. Yex asks, in your concept sketch for Design a Knight Final Figure, you drew him with a broken helmet version of the Hyper Knight head. Is this 100% the head he's going to come with? Any chance it will be the head with the fin? Um, you guys are getting both. So there you go. Yex also asks, you ever considered doing a Speed Racer homage? Um, I love Speed Racer. I would not do an homage. I would rather go after the Speed Racer license because I have a great idea for how to revamp that property. It may take me a couple of years to get there, but I would rather do an official one than uh, do an homage right now. Uh, and then regarding another homage pitch, how about Captain Planet? I don't like Captain Planet. I think uh, he's he's pretty lame, actually. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of overboard with the homages lately. I think I need to reel that back in. Josh Garris says, has there ever been a figure in Night of the Slice or Action Figure of the Month that didn't perform as well as you expected, aside from Hob? And did that influence your design process character selection going forward? I think in recent memory, the, the ones that underperformed were the, the second wave of Old Knight, which was Cray, DeLuca, and Pike. Um, they performed okay, but I thought because of the extra deco and the beautiful metallic capes and the, the additional money I was spending on the look of those figures that they would blow out. And that wasn't the case. They did okay, uh, but they stayed in stock a while. I think I still have some inventory of DeLuca. Uh, so what that taught me was spending more does not guarantee a sale. You know, I think that, uh, the concept really has to be there and it has to be connective to people. Those are three characters that nobody knew before then. Um, so that sort of influences me, but uh, I wouldn't say in a way that is, uh, you know, overbearing. 
Thomas Gionte asks, any experience with tabletop RPGs? Thoughts on a Night of the Slice campaign? Um, so, Thomas, I do owe you an answer on the uh, Discord, and I will get back to you on that. Um, yes, I want to have an entire guidebook of for an RPG. I want it to be like those West End Star Wars guidebooks. I would actually consider paying someone to do this, uh, and I would like to venture into this. Um, I, I do have a whole bunch to say about tabletop RPGs. It was something that came to me very late in life, but I, I should do an AD&D um, entire podcast at some point in the future. So if any of you have professional experience with writing an entire guidebook and you can format and be a total turnkey solution to get me something that looks like a West End Star Wars RPG guide, uh, hit me up and let's talk about that. KJ Smith says, have you ever considered doing a group of mafia knights? Oh, that's racist. I'm Italian. Or underground sub-city gang or biker-type crew. I would love a couple alien mutant cyborg heads and more weapons, but most of all heads, heads and more heads. Um, I haven't considered any of those things specifically. Uh, I think they're okay solutions. I would like to manufacture more heads. I think our next opportunity for heads is really going to be with 3D printed resin, which fit and look pretty good. Um, so uh, specifically, no, I haven't thought about those, but I, I think the future is pretty bright for something like that. Brian Doran asks, is there a database of all the colors used for knights like 7622, 3248, 4224, etc., etc. Um, no, there's not a database. I do use the Pantone color system, which is what most manufacturing is under. You can buy Pantone books. They're pretty expensive. I do not have a succinct database of every design I've done. There has been talks of myself and O'Neill putting together a comprehensive guide for all of our manufacturers that help people decide on plastic, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen. It's a huge undertaking. Quentin Russo says, I really liked RoboCop action figures from the 90s. Has a punk-themed character ever crossed your mind? Uh, yes, and there is something that scratches that itch coming to Action Figure of the Month 2020. So I look forward to revealing that soon. Trevor Petkiss says, Is there any chance of us designing, a future of us designing a night with more options, even if it means we won't have a figure in hand for a long period? I'd like to really feel like we designed a night together from scratch. Uh, and then he gives some examples here. So I think there's a couple things going on with Trevor's question that probably a lot of people are feeling. And uh, one is that I don't think actually Trevor or anybody else would ask this question if they got the night they wanted, right? But any of any night that gets selected is going to leave some people turned off. It's just the, the simple nature of doing a democratic vote for things like that. So I can't keep everybody happy here. I can only go with the popular vote. And I know that's going to leave people feeling like, I don't really want this figure. By the way, you guys don't have to buy this figure or accept this figure. If it's not the Design of Night figure you had in mind, I, you don't have to possess it, you know? Uh, and you can opt out, for sure. Like, I, I don't think you should have to support something you're not 100% about. Um, but given that, regardless of what night we ended up with, that it would turn people off, I don't know that there is a process we can do that's going to keep more people happy. There's always going to be people that are unhappy with the selection. Um, regarding types of plastic like doing glow or metallic or translucent, translucent was an option, 
that nobody chose. So I can't make you guys choose that for Hypernight. But what you are getting a window into is the incredibly restrictive nature of designing toys. And I don't want to portray something like the Design and Night tournament unrealistically. It is not a carte blanche to design whatever figure you want because there is always going to be restrictions at the production level, whether it's availability of plastic or a factory's familiarity with things like tampo prints or UV color change or metallics. There are always going to be these restrictions regardless of what style we chose. Now, you all happen to pick probably the most restrictive figure possible because it's not a figure that has been produced yet. And by that virtue, it falls unto, under the production timeline I currently have and the production restrictions I currently have. Um, I had to place the order uh, essentially yesterday for the entire run, and I had to tack on Vice Knight, and my hope is that they, they sort of agree to include him in the assortment. I, I don't have a guarantee yet that that's going to happen. Um, now, the obvious thought most of you are thinking is, well, then we should just delay and push out the production for Hypernight and let us have a more nuanced decision-making process. But I can't tell you that there's going to be a second running of Hypernight at this point. I think there will be. I think he will be successful and embraced by people. But I'm not willing to bet, you know, the 102 people that, that participated in this that there's going to be a second pressing. I can't guarantee you that factory is going to exist when it comes time for a second production window. I can't guarantee you what plastic colors may be scarce. I can't guarantee you what the tariff situation might be. All of toy manufacturing almost grinded to a halt, you know, a few weeks back with the tariff discussions. So I can't foresee what the ground is going to look like in the time it may take to let a design and night process breathe a little more. Um, it's it's a very scary premise, and and the risk is on me. You know, it's my money that goes down to uh, make these happen, and it's my time that I'm going to spend visiting the factory, making things right. So, while I think it is a fair critique that the process may have had less bells and whistles as people maybe imagined or would have liked. I do stand by that it is a very accurate depiction of the process of toy design. There are very few bells and whistles when it comes to this process. There are very few uh, selections of plastics at time. There are very few choices to kind of get you what you want. The, the, the art of designing and manufacturing is really the art of compromise. And you are constantly making concessions and sort of changing things and scaling things back and scaling things down. So while it may feel like not what you guys had in mind, I guarantee you this is a 100% accurate to the actual process of doing this. So if nothing else, you can sort of take stock in, in the fact that you have actually gotten a crash course in how this stuff works and how important timelines is and timelines are and how rushed the entire process can be. So if nothing else, you now have so much more information than the average toy consumer in into what this process really is. Um, 
Now, that being said, uh, if we get to 250 people, I think that we will have... Uh, there's definitely the option to have a lot more sort of uh, picks for things. Um, you know, it's... Uh, this is a sort of victim of its own constraints in a lot of respects. But I, I think it's a fair question. I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, but I, I would ask everyone to agree to the reality that not everybody is going to like what we landed on, even if it was a classic night or if it was a vector jump or whatever you know you might have had in mind. And I would also say uh, the Vice Hyper Knight is not the figure I would have chosen, but I've grown to love it, and I think we actually made a great choice. And uh, it was kind of terrifying to land on Hyper Knight and to land on Vice Knight, and I had to scramble to design it, but I did it, and I think we got something great. And it's that sort of friction, that unpleasant feeling that a lot of times produces something really fantastic. Uh, so there you have it, folks. The only thing left to say is pizza out.